Did you know that in the U.S. Civil War, it wasn't only slavery that the North and South couldn't agree on? They couldn't agree on battle names either. The South preferred to name battles after nearby towns or man-made landmarks. The North preferred to name battles after bodies of water or other natural landmarks. Welcome to the Lore of the South. Search for Laura of the South on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Welcome back to Laura of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. How the heck are y'all doing? Do y'all feel like you're in the mood for some spooky? We've been doing a lot of history lately. I'm kind of neglecting the spooky. So I thought that I would pop in and give y'all a little Valentine's Day spookiness. Forget the heart-shaped box of chocolates. And let's find some supernatural missed connections, if you will. But before we do that, let's dig up some history-making news. In 2022, preparations began to clear a site north of Rome for a solar farm when they uncovered a 52-acre necropolis containing somewhere around 70 skeletons. And by the looks of things, these weren't your regular old farm laborers either. These were the bones of the high-class city folk. The grave goods were unique and expensive. They found gems, gold jewelry, and coins, along with other expensive items like glassware. And some of the skeletons still had bits of expensive stockings and their shoes still on. The graves themselves were very shallow, only about 20 inches below the surface. And archeologists feel that it's in this rocky limestone that made up this area that saved it from probably being plowed and farmed and destroyed. So, the Romans had it right. This land is a good place for the dead, and apparently for solar farms. Humans will always find a use. Over the course of almost 100 podcasts, we've talked about women who have married ghosts, a dude that tried to keep the corpse of his dearly departed obsession, even the ghost of Polly's Island who brings with him the warnings of impending storms, He was even the product of a love story that ended too soon. The Singing River, it still carries the voices of the dead Biloxi tribe who all went to their deaths instead of being conquered. And they did it to protect a couple in love. So let's explore that. Let's talk about love or obsession so great that they caused folks to linger for an eternity. Or maybe even reap vengeance from beyond the grave. Welcome to episode 82, Vengeance and Valentines. Misty sent this story idea to me back in October. And y'all see, I hang on to these show ideas, so y'all send them in. Thank you, Misty, for listening and for your suggestion. I've been saving it for just the right time. And to me, Valentines and Vengeance just kind of go together. Story number one, The Wrath of the Witch of Yazoo City. We have passed the exit sign for Yazoo City, Mississippi more times than I can even remember on the way to Fort Worth and back home again. 
I can't say that we have ever stopped there. My apologies, Yazoo City. But maybe we should. After reading up on the Yazoo City Witch, Yazoo is a small town just outside of the state capital of Jackson, just east of the Mississippi River and the state line. The town was formed in the early 1820s and went through a couple of name changes before the citizens settled on Yazoo City. And the city shares a name with a local river and Native American tribe. Yazoo was doing pretty well until the Civil War broke out. When the North arrived, the city was decimated and it took years to recover. It was during this recovery period, or the Reconstruction, as it was came to be known as, was when the witch of Yazoo City was at her busiest. Her name and identity are lost to time. Maybe the town was too scared to even utter the woman's name. In fear that she might return again. And that's why no one remembers who she was. But the legend continues even without the woman's identity. She was known to have lived on the banks of the Yazoo River in a small cabin. The cabin also had a shed that she stored various gardening implements in, along with some herbs and other things hanging from the rafters. People would wave to the woman on the banks as they floated past on boats, rafts, and the occasional canoe, and she'd kindly wave back as at all the people who floated past on that dark water. Because those traveling in groups or with families, they got to travel on past her and on down the river. But if she were to catch a man out on those waters alone, he'd have been wise to keep on floating by. In town, the local sheriff began to hear stories from people passing through looking for a missing brother or father or son. I mean, back then, you could just pick up and move say 10 miles away and no one would know you and you could start a whole new life but in these cases these didn't seem like the type of men who would do that sort of thing so at first the men who were missing were from out of town and they all had one thing in common though they had been using the yazoo river as transportation headed further south time passes and the sheriff says he'll keep an eye out but after a while, the local men are starting to get reported missing as well. These were all men who had told their families that they were going out fishing for their suppers and would be home before dinner time. Others were just known fishermen on the river and in the local swamps. And they were never seen or heard from again. And it's when the locals started disappearing that the sheriff finally began his investigation. On May 25th, 1884, he rounded up a posse and rode out to the witch's place out there on the river. Upon arrival, the place appeared neat as a pen. Nothing appeared out of sorts, so the men dismounted and began searching the property. They started in the cabin, presumably to let the lady of the house know that they were about, but there was no sign of her. So they continued through the cabin and out into the shed. It was late May in the south, so y'all know it had to be hot and humid. There was a buzz of flies all around the little shed and a smell that couldn't quite be described other than maybe some pork that had been left too long in the sun. 
The sheriff knew before the men could pry the shed door open that it wasn't going to be good. The men managed to wrench the door open, and inside, in various states of undress and decomp, were numerous bodies of all of the men who had gone missing over the past few years. Bodies just in a tangled heap, crawling with all sorts of vermin. The sights and smells were horrid enough to send nearly every man on the scene scurrying for the nearby woods to lose that morning's breakfast. When the men finally gathered and collected themselves, they set off on foot into the swamplands in search of the murderess. After about an hour's search, the sheriff finally had his woman, and she was nearly neck deep in quicksand. He questioned her. Why'd you do it, you old witch? That was too many bodies to even count. She remained quiet, so he tried again. Confess, and we'll free you to face the judge. She still didn't respond, so the sheriff ordered one of the men to throw a rope around her, so that they could pull her out. She continued to sink, and the men made no move to save her beyond throwing that loop around her. She could feel the weight of the sand, mud, and water pressing against her. It became hard for her to breathe. She let out an unintentional gasp, and she saw some of the men flinch. They were afraid of her. With her last breath, she cursed the men and their city, She spoke with what strength she had left. In twenty years' time, I will return, but not as you see me now. I will return as a wild wind, driven flame, and I will destroy you and everything you have built. Then the men watched in silence as the witch gasped one last time, her chin just above the waterline, and then she just seemed to disappear beneath the dark waters. And took the men some time and energy to pull the woman from her dark and wet entombment. They carried her back to town and buried her in the Glenwood Cemetery. They gave her a marker, but it had no date on it. Maybe out of superstitious reasons, thinking if they didn't set the date in stone, maybe she'd forget when the 20 years would be up. Then... As an added measure, they placed chains about the grave to help ensure that she could not rise again and destroy their city. With her death, the disappearances stopped. So the sheriff in the town went on about its business, rebuilding, inventing Jim Crow laws and such, and it seemed like the Witch of Yazoo was relegated to a thing of legends. Something to tell the kids, to keep them in the house at night, you know? keep them away from the dangerous river or the witch would get them. She was the town's boogie monster. Then the 20 year anniversary comes around. But those who knew the witch and what she did and the terrifying way she died were all old men now or dead themselves. So not too many gave the date a second thought when May 25th, 1904 showed up on their calendars. It's reported that the fire was started either by a little boy who was playing with his mother's kitchen matches, or it was started by a young bride who had been making her bridal dinner. So it is known that this unholy fire got its start by innocent enough hands. 
It's in the manner of which it spread that the townspeople blamed the witch. They claimed that as the first house went up, an unnatural wind started, and it pushed and pulled the flames to spread to the surrounding grounds and homes and businesses. Three quarters of the town and its business district were lost. Fire continued to rage all the way up to the canal that ran in front of the town's new courthouse. The courthouse was new because the Yankees had destroyed the old one, but for some reason, those flames subsided just before they could leap across that water barrier. Was it the spirit of the witch stopping the flame short of the place that she never saw the inside of? Was this a way for her to receive justice? After the townspeople were sure that the fires were out, some of them gathered at the Glenwood Cemetery, where they had buried the witch 20 years prior. And what they found there was shocking. The stone over the grave had cracked in half, and the links of the chains meant to keep the witch put were pulled apart like a giant had come through and stretched several of the links open. You can still visit the witch's grave today and see her cracked marker and her broken chains. If you choose to stop in, maybe say a little prayer that our chained lady, or witch of Yazoo, stays in her grave and doesn't rise again to destroy the city that ended her. Yeah, only two stories today, y'all. Normally I do three, but... These both were a little bit on the longer side, so I think I saved the best story for last. This one is definitely of the lovey-dovey Valentine's Day sorts, without the vengeance parts. So and this is the love story of Juliet Gordon Lowe's parents, Nellie and Willie Gordon. Their daughter Juliet was the founder of the Girl Scouts. Their story comes to us from a book by Margaret DeBolt, Savannah Specters and Other Strange Tales. Willie's family were heroes of the American Revolution and moved to Savannah soon after the war's ending. The Gordons would become some of Georgia's most famous natives. Willie's father started the Georgia Central Railroad and was the first Georgian to graduate from West Point. Y'all, and the Gordons are definitely going to get their own podcast one day. But back to Willie and Nellie. Nellie's background was just as colorful as Willie's. Amongst her ancestors were pilgrims, some of the founders of the city of Chicago. And y'all, Nellie's grandma Eleanor Little was once captured by Native Americans and held by the famous chief Corn Planter. They were wild, y'all. This is this family is beyond interesting. On with the story. Willie and Nellie were a love match from the start. It's said that Willie swore to marry her after watching her slide down the banister of Yale's library's main staircase. While she managed to land on him and crush his new hat, apparently stole Willie's heart while she was at it. The couple wed in December of 1857, but there would be much compromise between the two. He was from a wealthy Southern family who were slave owners, and she was a well-to-do Chicago Yankee, as one author phrased it. She yielded to the fact that he was loyal to the South, and he changed religions. He brought his bride home to the Gordon Mansion in Savannah, and soon after the Civil War broke out, 
Nellie had family on both sides and a husband who was a Confederate officer. During the war, Nellie would call on generals from both sides to aid her in finding her husband when she could not reach him by letter. Those two generals were um, William Tecumseh Sherman and Robert E. Lee. And they both found him and both times offered her an armed escort so that she could visit him on the front. The couple would have six children total, three before and during the war and three after. War and death were the only two things that could separate these two. He preceded her in death on September 11, 1912 at the age of 77. Nellie would live another five years. In a letter to a cousin, she wrote, Here I remain, very much against my will. Winter of 1817, her health began to fade fast. She suffered a series of heart attacks and was bedridden and even comatose part of the time. She did as many dying do and had a moment of improvement. It was then that she laid out her final wishes to her daughter-in-law. When I die, I don't want anybody wearing mourning. I don't want any tears. I shall be happy to be with my Willie again. Everyone should celebrate. February 22, 1917. Nellie's physician told her five living children that their mother wouldn't last the day, and they should all say their goodbyes. Nellie's daughter-in-law went into an adjoining room, which at one time had been Willie's room, who they also called Willie the General, due to an appointment that he received during the Spanish-American War. So, the daughter-in-law goes into Willie's room, which was an adjoining room, to Nellie's, and she did that to give the siblings some privacy, so she sat and waited to hear of the matriarch's passing, and she finally heard someone coming through the door and expected to see her husband coming to tell her the sad news. Instead of seeing her husband, there stood her father-in-law looking just like his formerly alive self, wearing his favorite gray suit even. The specter of General Willie carried a warm smile on his face as he exited the room and went out the front door and down its steps. She continued to sit there until only a moment later her husband appeared in the same doorway that his ghostly father had just departed from. He began to tell his wife that his mother had gone, and she immediately began to tell him what she had just witnessed. He tried to calm her, telling her that it was grief, or maybe she had dozed off and had dreamed it, and he continued to brush her off until they left the room and encountered the family's butler. The old black man had tears rolling down his cheeks. He then also described the scene that the daughter-in-law had. The general, he looked like his old self, and he came down the hall and out onto the porch like he'd always done when carriage had been waiting to take him to the cotton exchange. He then spoke up a bit more and told the son of that house, Well, t'was good to see him again. He looked so well and happy, happier than most had ever seen him. I thought you'd like to know that the general... He come and fetch the missus himself, so. The children, who had been present at the time of their mother's death, reported that the moment she passed, 
She had the look on her face of a bride going to meet her groom. How was that for a spooky little love story, y'all? How about some side notes? Yazoo City and the river and the tribe it's named for played a big part in the Civil War. The South had built a shipyard there after losing New Orleans and Memphis to the Union. At least one ship was produced, the CSS Arkansas, and it's what held off the federal troops from conquering Vicksburg to the South any earlier than what they had. Also, apparently, Yazoo City was so nice that the Union burned it twice. Um, and now, let's talk about the Gordons. Y'all, there needs to be, like, a whole TV series about these people. I mean, like, Juliet Gordon-Lowe, the one that, like, gets all the attention. She's, like, the least of it. Great, we got Girl Scouts. Love your cookies, guys. Love your cookies. But this family is insanely talented and just wild literally wild the some of the stories i started reading about their ancestors oh my gosh it's gonna be great podcast and it would be great tv <laughs> hbo you listen oh and i also need to add about willie and nelly theirs was a true love story uh, for the ages they felt it was their greatest failing that their daughter Juliet did not have the same kind of luck and love that they did. She had a very unhappy marriage. Very, very, very unhappy, troubled, abusive marriage. And one researcher said that she had really expected to find quite the opposite when it came to Nellie and Willie. She thought that they would have been the reason that Juliet's marriage didn't work out when it was really the opposite is what she found they were like the perfect example for how dedicated they were to each other in her research she read letter after letter from the two and in one letter there was this one was from Juliet Girl Scout founder to her brother Arthur and in it Juliet said speaking about their mom she never pretended for a moment that he was not her first and last love. And we were as nothing by comparison. Maternal love is the inheritance of the ages, but love such as mama gave him was a personal tribute. That's pretty amazing, especially for that time. So let's move from Valentine's of Vengeance into our oldest building by state brought to us by the Discoverer blog. Last time we did our double T's, so that means we are on to Utah and Vermont. Y'all, we're almost like out of states. What are we gonna do next? I'll have to figure something out. The oldest standing building in Utah is a ranch house on Antelope Island and was constructed by Mormon pioneers in 1848. For Vermont, it's the Defoe Moore Wright House in Pownall. No idea how to say that, y'all. It was built somewhere between 1750 and 1765, and everything from the dates to the builder himself are still debated. Producer Mike and I are going to be taking a brief little weekend trip. Um, haven't been able to do that in so long, y'all. I'm so looking forward to this. 
But we're just going to do a quick little overnight stay in Amelia Island. We figured out because it's the closest. And we're going to visit Fort Clinch and Kingsley Plantation. And Kingsley Plantation has an amazing story attached to it. And I cannot wait to go visit this place and then be able to share the story with y'all afterwards. Be sure to follow us on social media. I always post pictures to go along with every episode. If you have any show ideas, you can email the show at lorethesouth at gmail.com. If you really liked what you heard, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as three bucks a month. And with that, we'll talk to y'all on the next episode of Lore of the South. Stay tuned for a preview of our latest Patreon episode. Oh, even even me being a skeptic, though, like I wouldn't mind going to do it just to have the experience. And like I said, I've, I've, that's one of the things I've come across with all of this is like, even though I'm not a big believer in ghosts, I love doing the ghost walks and stories and places. And I love all of that stuff, even though I don't necessarily believe it. The stories that they make in the process are what makes it entertaining to me. So, like, okay, and we're getting off topic here, guys, but, um, so, like, when we stayed in that 1890s or 1900 property in St. Augustine. Oh, in St. Francis Inn? No, not St. Francis Inn. Okay. No, the Airbnb that we rented with your oh, yeah. brother and his family. Yes. And when everybody was gone, you were upstairs sleeping off your ingrown toenail. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I was sleeping it he off. had like a major oh like my he God. tried to perform surgery on himself like an old oh. civil war doc. It was it, we recorded the whole thing. It was hilarious. Oh yeah. My sister-in-law is a nurse practitioner and she was eating it up. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so everybody had gone mm-hmm. and I'd stayed home. I'd stayed in and Michael was upstairs sleeping. These old houses, they call them four corner houses because you had two rooms in the front, two rooms in the back, and then the upstairs, it was the same floor plan. Two rooms mm-hmm. in the front, two rooms in the back. So, and then there's a center staircase. Mm-hmm. So where I was sitting in the little sitting area, the little living room, the wall, there is a wall there that divided it from the hallway where the staircase led out the front door. Mm-hmm. And that's when I heard footsteps come all the way down the stairs all the way down the hallway to the front door Mm -hmm. and then they stopped right what did i hear i have no idea like i have no idea i didn't hear it nobody else heard it well nobody else was there right and you were asleep Mm -hmm. what made literal footsteps come down the staircase and down the hall i don't i don't know but you don't think it was a ghost I don't think so, no. If you loved what you heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com.